Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. 12-year-old Mary Anning pulled a dinosaur out of a cliff and set off a firestorm of philosophy and science that never seemed to include her, somehow. From the Loch Ness Monster to Jurassic Park, the world would never be the same. The end. Let's talk about Mary Anning. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1799, the first U.S. patent for a seating machine was granted. The first U.S. law regulating insurance companies was passed, and the first U.S. printed ballots were authorized. Napoleon Bonaparte was gobbling up territory, seating himself as the dictator of France, and when his troops were in Egypt, one of his army captains discovered the Rosetta Stone. Although it wasn't compulsory for another 38 years, France became the first country to use the metric system. By 2019, the entire world, except three countries, used this as their official weights and measures. The first recorded meteor shower was observed off the Florida Keys. The Royal Institute of Great Britain, dedicated to scientific research and education, opened. George Washington and Patrick Henry both died. And in 1799, Mary Anning, future fossil collector and paleontologist, was born. Mary Anning was born on May 21, 1799, in Lyme Regis, a seaside town in Dorset, England. She was the fifth of the ten children of Richard Anning and Molly Moore Anning, though she was only the youngest of two children to survive to the age of five. Let that sit a minute. In fact, our Mary Anning was named after her oldest sister, Mary Anning, who died at four when her clothing caught on fire. The heartbreak of daily life. Sometimes I just can't take it on board. No. And she died just six months before Mary II was born. Papa and Mama had met and married about 10 miles from here and moved down the coast in search of a better life. The economy in Dorset as a whole was pretty abysmal. The Industrial Revolution was not spreading its benefits over the South. It um, had made these textile towns in the North very rich. A lot of new jobs. All the commercial shipping had moved to larger harbors. So Papa and Mama were very, very poor, surrounded by mostly very poor neighbors. <laughs> if that makes sense. Poor on top of poor. Just the differences between the two, between Richard and Molly, just seems so striking, just so classic, opposites attracting. He just sounds like a really outgoing. He was described as big and bearded and very charming. He was kind of a dreamer. And she was very quiet and serious and grounded. He also belonged to a different church than she did, which I found very interesting, especially in this time period. Uh, Richard was raised as a dissenter. That's anybody that doesn't belong to the Church of England. Molly was raised Church of England. So the fact that these two married to begin with was kind of surprising. Dissenters were kind of looked down upon. They were sort of, I don't want to say oppressed, but just a hundred years before their marriage, it was illegal to even be a dissenter. At the time of their marriage, they couldn't join the army. A dissenter couldn't hold an official job. They couldn't attend a university. They were definitely looked upon as a lower class just for their religious beliefs. There you go. I <laughs> don't fully understand the difference between the two. Um, that's never been my forte. <laughs> I would guess that it is not as large of a difference as the behavior of others might indicate it might be. 
I would agree with that completely. I believe it's how the services were held, you know, how the sermons were given, how the discussion happened within the church that was different between the two of them. Theologically, I don't think they were that far off. So at the time that the newlyweds moved to Lyme Regis, it was still, in most places, a dirty, germ-laden place. Um what do you call it? People's chamber pots had been emptied in the same spot for decades. That's all I'm saying about that. And the piles were tall. Is that where the good vegetables grew? <laughs> I would say you would have. Yes. Uh, so they took a house close to the ocean, the lower the elevation, the lower the status in this town, mostly because the ocean around here was not known to behave. And at times, the lower elevations in town would flood. If you wanted to be optimistic, it was like a self-cleaning feature of the house. But whenever there was a big storm, their first floor would be filled with water. But the rent was cheap because it was next door to the jail. <laughs> so not only was it at the bad side of town, but it was in a bad location. And the bad side of town was on this really busy street where there was all these cart accidents all the time. Great place to raise kids. Oh, my goodness. Well, Papa took up his cabinetry business and they started their lives on a shoestring. But there was something in the air or more specifically something in the water. A doctor up in London named Richard Russell was going viral, Marie Kondo levels of viral all over England with his, quote, findings, this kills me, that seawater taken both externally and internally was the cure for dot, 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 whatever ails you. Depression, syphilis, impotence, eye disease, <laughs> Whatever. Seawater was the magic potion. So the well-heeled royalty, even the middle classes, began flocking to the English seaside. Napoleon had been kind of blocking off Europe with his boats and his, um, you know, aggression. And so everyone kind of flocked down here to Bath, to Brighton, and increasingly to Lyme Regis. The town got smartened up. Tourism became a principal industry and the town was on the rise, which was mostly the work, honestly, of one rich man who kind of bought the whole town, saw it as an investment, added assembly rooms, added indoor baths, some of the first in England, fancy shops, promenades. Um, the town was really, really starting to change. There was an interesting feature to Lyme Regis, and that is what's called the Cobb. What the Cobb was is a breakwater. Not only did it protect the harbor from the sea, but it also created the harbor where there wasn't one before. Just the engineering of this thing was amazing. It was built in like the 1300s. Oak piles were driven deep into the ocean floor. Then rocks were stacked between them, one layer on top of another, until it was above the water. It went straight up. It was flat on the top. People could walk on it. It was a big selling point for this area. The problem with the cob is that as shipping got bigger and bigger, the cob stayed the same size. So commercial shipping didn't come in anymore. Well, what's left? Recreational boating. Well, that's better anyway for tourists. So recreational boating and walking on the Cobb took over where once it had been a thriving port and a textile industry. So you can see how it's gentrifying. Uh, definitely. And so to cater to the new tourist trade, a lot of the locals decided to take advantage of a natural resource that was free for the taking, that was foreign to the visitors, but as common as could be. Um, the process was called fossicking or 
fossiling, which means digging. And there were all kinds of weird rock formations in the cliffs nearby Lyme Regis. And they had names like thunderbolts, vertebraries, cornemonious, crocodile teeth, ladyfingers. Like no one really thought that much about them except, oh, look, it's a cool souvenir. People who lived there were used to them. They didn't really care if they thought about them at all. They thought, oh, they're just left over from the Great Flood capitalized G, capitalized F. (laughs) Um, Mostly they were just cool rock thingies for your cabinet of curiosities at home. I am obsessed with these, honestly. Even now on sites like Etsy or Pinterest, you can see just collections of mostly natural objects. My whole house is little vignettes and cabinets of curiosities. It's kind of a disease, but it was fashionable to collect different objects and display them. And most importantly, at least with regard to mine, is every single thing you have tells a story. Where you found it, who you talked to to get it, the perils you encountered while obtaining this object. It is both an icebreaker and kind of a memory box. See, taking the waters, fashionable. Cabinets of curiosities, also very fashionable. So Papa started doing that just like the locals did. And you could make a few shillings and feed your family that way. When Mary was just over a year old, there was sort of a traveling circus in town and everyone had turned out to see it. It was kind of like trick riders. Yay, you know, any entertainment, honestly. (laughs) Um, So Mary was in the arms of a neighbor lady. And you know how it is, mamas, if someone offers to take the baby at a party, you never turn that down. That's my advice to you, except for (laughs) suddenly lightning struck the tree that they were standing under. Three women, including the person that was holding Mary, were killed outright. And as far as anyone could tell, the baby was dead too. But they discovered she was kind of breathing and rushed her home and, quote, revived her in a bath of warm water. It was a miracle, said the local doctor, who should have just taken credit because no one would have known. No, not at all. Probably one of the reasons why Molly gave her baby over in the first place is Mary was a really hard baby. She was tiny. She didn't eat very much. She cried all the time. I mean, think of your worst colicky baby. That was Mary. So if someone comes along and says, I'm going to take her, you say, sure, okay, go ahead. But after this experience, suddenly she was a changed baby. She was happy. She was eating. She was getting healthy. So the miracle of her survival is part one. The miracle of how the family says that her personality was changed is miracle too, I guess. Okay, here's me, the skeptic. (laughs) Likely her near-death experience made people more attentive to her rather than a Marvel Comics-style superhero moment. (laughs) And also at 15 months, they're all saying, oh, she's so much more intelligent now. Like, have you taken a lot of steps toward qualifying for Harvard (laughs) or whatnot (laughs) at this point? So I get you. You're just just saying what the family said was this, but I am just like, people are cracking me up. between 15 and 18 months, kids change a lot. Suddenly they become toddlers. They're no longer babies. So it could have just been natural progression of development. (laughs) So we are just big, fat, spoil sports. But regardless, there's no doubt that Mary Anning was supremely intelligent, if not a baby bound for Harvard. Speaking of education, Mary did not have a formal education per se. She had Sunday school. 
Now, it wasn't Sunday school like we think of just open your Bible and let's read this. In the dissenters church, it was more of a conversation, more of a time to teach kids to read and write. The idea is that educated members of the congregation are contributing members of the congregation. If you can read your Bible, if you can read the instruction manual, you will be a better Christian is the thought process. That was more reading and writing than many girls were able to do in her time and place. So for her location, I think she was doing okay. And a side note, in this edition of Before They Were Famous, when Mary was about five years old, a woman named Miss Jane Austen called on Papa to see about the repair of a wooden box. He charged too much, she said, as far as she was concerned, and she insulted him and went away again. (laughs) And I am so sad to report that what she said was basically, and I'm paraphrasing, that price that you just quoted me is more than every single piece of furniture in this house is worth, and I am not a chump. (laughs) So I am hating to think of Jane Austen being a bad customer, and I'm also hating Papa maybe being a person who takes advantage of tourists, but there you go. (laughs) In the man's defense, you got someone like Jane Austen, who, I mean, she wasn't famous at this point. She had one novel published, but she wasn't a household name yet. But you have someone who looks like they're moneyed coming into your shop. You're going to raise the price of everything. On Martha's Vineyard, if you vacation in July, items are cheaper than if you vacation in August. That's all I'm saying. There's also, say it with me, customer service people, the point at which you don't like someone's attitude (laughs) So you decide you're not going to do whatever it is and you quote them a way too high price so they go away. (laughs) Any of those things could be in play. (laughs) He might not have got along with Miss Austin specifically, but he was good with most the other well-brought up tourists who came to his curio display table outside of the house. He was the right amounts deferential and funny, I think, Mm -hmm. was the key. He taught Mary and her brother Joseph the value of merchandising. Take the time to polish things up for the gentry with a brush and a needle to get in the little tiny cracks. You know, have a story about how you got it. Have a story about the medicinal properties of the ground up stone. (laughs) If you got it, cornimoniuses, that's what we would call ammonites, were supposed to cure impotence for one thing. So I'm not sure how you're going to bring that up in casual conversation in 1805. (laughs) (laughs) But if anybody could, I suppose it would be Richard. You know, because he was a carpenter, he also taught them to make like little boxes like a pretty little box or display for these items that they were selling him to upsell. An accessory that the Annings were uniquely positioned to offer, both of their worlds colliding. It was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Most of what they sold was little things you can pick up, kind of not exactly dime a dozen, but very, very common. These things called bellum nights, which is basically remnants of ancient squids that they called thunderstones because they're shaped like a lightning bolt which makes no sense. Um, Also an oyster that they called the devil's toenail was very common, but most impressive of all, but still pretty common, were the ammonites. You know, I wish that I could post a picture up about what an ammonite looks like. Has anyone seen like a chambered nautilus? It's just basically a spiral and there's a bunch of little rooms that the creature lived in that get bigger as it gets bigger and builds outward. So basically it builds itself a front porch and then moves into it. Gets bigger, builds itself a front porch, moves into it. And it ends up being 
a quite beautiful formation. And I read that Mary's father was one of the first ones to purposely slice them in half and then polish them that way because they looked more beautiful for a display table. Plus, it doubles your product. Like the other guys are just selling it as one item. Now you have two. Because you sliced it in half. You'd probably have to be super good. Yeah, but to get two good pieces. I don't know. I don't know. He was a carpenter. Mm. Presumably he had the tools. Speaking of tools, he, he also made Mary a little pickaxe to fit into her little hand so she could chip away at the rock herself. I love that. And these rocks, if you've ever watched Poldark, Poldark is filmed in Cornwall, which is about 200 miles south of Lyme Regis, but essentially it looks the same. So those jagged cliffs, you know, the grass goes all the way to the edge and then it just drops off, looks just like that. So that's where they're walking. On those little beaches, like Poldark has his own little beach. (laughs) They have a little beach that they walk on and then they're scrambling along the cliffs and the rocks. I love Poldark, so (laughs) I got all excited when I realized that's what it was. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that made out of the same stuff? Uh, Shale and I'm doing this off the top of my head. Hold on. Oh, well, no, this is shale and limestone, but I I don't know what Poldark is made of. Oh, I, you know what? I don't know. It's 200 miles south. It's not part of what's now called the Jurassic Coast because of all the fines. Is the... that a spoiler for later? Oh, sorry. No, I'm just <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not a geologist. So here's Papa and his two kids cruising around that area, even on Sundays, this heathen dissenters. It's just <laughs> very dangerous. There's epic amounts of wind. The waves were bad enough regularly, but the area around Lyme Regis was subject to these violent tides and also powerful currents. A rogue wave could basically just slap the face off the whole cliff face and cause an avalanche. The cliffs are made of this very crumbly stone. They're unpredictable. And like, imagine building yourself a set of stairs out of those little bright colored blocks toddlers play with. And then, no, the ones that don't hook together. They're just wooden blocks. Oh, oh, oh. So basically make yourself a step out of those and then go up and down it about seven times and see how much that's going to crumble into your feet. That's basically the whole cliff face at all times. Very dangerous. So here the three would go with their rock sacks getting heavier as they slid around on this clayey mud that's up there and just clambered up these splintering rocks and then rocks the size of loaves of bread just randomly would come loose from above and bounce. So avoid that kids. It's the worst kind of video game, honestly, where you really do lose a life. If the obstacle hits you, this seems like a recipe to lose the last two children. So was it the love of fossils or economic necessity? In my head, I had it as them doing a family activity. And because he started so early with the kids, it was second nature to them. They didn't think twice of it. I was raised on a sailboat. So getting on and off a sailboat, getting out of a dinghy, that all came super easy to me at a very young age. I never even thought about it. So I'm thinking this was like the same thing, sort of. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. And it could be to the kids. That's just what you did. There'd be a massive storm and like all heck would break loose. And they would head out early, early, early in the next morning trying to be the first ones on site. They would hustle half a mile before the sun came up to get there before everybody else because that is one thing that the ocean gave you was new merchandise. That's right. (laughs) Well, when Mary was eight... Papa Anning took off to a nearby village with a bag full of curios because there was a scheduled coach stop and um, some eager customers, ideally. But in the fog that early in the morning, he fell over a cliff 
about three stories down falling. And then an avalanche started up above and beat him up some more. He was badly injured and he staggered home and who knows how many bones were broken, how many internal injuries he had, not the doctors of the day. That's for sure. He was never the same afterwards, honestly. No, I I thought of those rocks as like knocking the spunk out of him. Because it, this guy who had been getting up and going fossil hunting every day that he could suddenly had no interest in it. He was in a lot of pain. You know, he just had no interest in getting back out there. His passion for fossil hunting just seemed to be gone. So three years pass and Papa died when Mary was only 11. Probably not of his injuries, but of the ever-present tuberculosis. Consumption. Which every time I read that, I always think it sounds so much nicer than what it really is. Well, so he died just ahead of one of the worst economic depressions that the area had ever seen. The family was forced to go on what they called parish relief, just basic food stuff, which in this case and in this location was oats. So you'd get a bag of oats and that's pretty much it. But at least your stomach was full. Mama was pregnant with her 10th child and the breadwinner was gone. The heart of the house had just disappeared. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done, ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash H-I-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-I-C-K-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash HistoryChicks. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So the new sibling came. It was a little boy and the baby left quite soon after his birth. And after the death of the new baby, Mama just spiraled downward into what we'd call depression. Melancholy is what they would have said then. And 15-year-old Joseph, the brother, got himself apprenticed to a local upholsterer, probably a friend of his father's who was in the furniture industry. No such career path was available for a girl of course. And so Mary earned what money she could from running errands and doing servant type work for neighbors. She's 11. And life was just a battle and a struggle. Parish relief gives you food of a basic sort, but rent still had to be paid. It's a lot for her little shoulders to take. It is. And when Richard had died, he left the family in debt and that debt didn't go away with him. And now the turning point. You know, when you are thinking of someone you have just lost. And there's a place or a thing that brings you closer to that person and you're just feeling away. Well, there was a big storm and Mary felt melancholy about her father and she decided to take off back to the cliffs 
which reminded her of happier days. So what happens after a big storm? There's fresh fossils everywhere. These nuggets of rock you could just dig out of the clay with your fingers, even if you hadn't brought your equipment. And after a few hours, she started looking everything over, laying them out to see what was maybe good enough to take home. She hadn't really come out with her equipment. She had to carry everything. The story goes that Mary had everything laid out and she had unearthed a particularly good ammonite, distinct and complete bigger than usual, not obviously cut in half, but you can still see from the outside. It's pretty cool. And a well-dressed woman, a stranger, kind of idly walking by along the beach, which takes effort because it's made of rocks and not sand. (laughs) I'm just going to say she must have had some good shoes, approached her and offered to buy it. To Mary's great surprise, the customer, I think, thought she was driving a hard bargain and gave her enough money to keep her family in food and in the house for a week, either not understanding that she was buying a relatively common fossil or really not even caring because it's pocket change to her. And so it was on. Mary went, okay, this is a resource. I'm 11. I don't have to clean people's houses. I could become a full-time fossicker. And Joseph too did it before and after work and on Sundays again, both of them. (laughs) And then cleaning, brushing, displaying on the table outside in time to meet the incoming tourists coming off the coach, making the little boxes. It was a real little family business. Joseph was out alone one day about a mile from the house when he saw a weird shape kind of outlined in the rocks and dug around it carefully. He's been doing this his whole life. But what was this? A crocodile? Skull? Cool. You know, (laughs) everyone picked up teeth all the time, but this was something he really, mm, I've never really seen a thing like this. I can't get it out by myself. And after a while, he ran back to town and got a few men to help him dig it out the rest of the way and carry it back because, you know, the tide comes in, the waves come in, your thing could be gone or broken. And so he had to hurry that day. And the men who are very accommodating to drop whatever they're doing and come down to the beach and help this kid a mile away. I don't know if any of my neighbors would be like... That's super good. Flip side, I'm sure Joseph did plenty of going out to help them too. It's the give and take. They're all doing it. It's the yes. p- pioneer back scratching. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. Ultimately, this thing was four feet long. This is the skull of something big, huh? Well, Joseph and Mary put their heads together. What were they going to do with this? And Joseph thought, you know, surely if there's a head, there's a body, like the rest of it. And it, Seemed that Joseph's work at the upholsterer was the thing that was now principally paying for the family's life. And so he couldn't really skive off and go focus on the skeleton. So he asked Mary if she could look for it. Which she did for almost a year until another savage storm came by and cleared away some more rock. And then she saw it. She saw something. So it was chisel, chisel, chisel. Oh, hey, it's a vertebrae. More chiseling. She finds things. Is this a rib? She keeps pulling everything out that she can until a point where she couldn't either. And she got some people involved to help her. Now, eventually, she was able to dig up an entire backbone. This was no crocodile. Yeah, it became quite the spectacle to come down and watch little tiny Mary, who's only 12, and, you know, men you know from the village and you can razz them. And then ultimately, these bruisers that in my mind look like the rock from the nearby quarry had to be called (laughs) to get the big pieces out. So everyone would come down and just gop at everybody trying to get this out for months. It became quite the spectacle. 
It's too bad they didn't charge for it. Mary Anning Skeleton, they called it. And once she and The Rock got it up to the workshop (laughs) and cleaned it up, it was 17 feet long, if you put it in order. And just so strange looking. There were fish parts and dolphin question mark parts and just mix matched and so big. So crazy. And um, there was a frequent customer of their regular merchandise, the local lord of the manor, and in fact, owner of the cliff Mary found it in. Not to put too fine a point on this. Uh, (laughs) His name was Henry Henley, and he was the owner of Colway Manor, which still exists, actually. They just sold it a couple years ago for only 357,000 pounds. It's a stone mansion. I'm sure it was pretty decrepit to have gone for that price. But anyway, he came to the Annings and offered six months of their income for the skeleton. And no matter how cool you think this indescribable thing is, would you turn down half a year's salary for something? I mean, also, Mr. Henley's pretty much the boss of you. In this age of deference, he is, quote, your better. So if he wants it, you kind of have to sell it to him. I don't think it was something she had to think about very much. I mean, that's no. a lot of money. And that's what these people were doing. They were getting these things so they could sell them to live on. So they sold it to him for only 23 pounds. But see, only 23 pounds could keep a family of three for six months. That is something else. And one's a teenage boy. You know how they eat. So <laughs> that's amazing to me. Well, um, he turned around and donated it to William Bullock's Museum of Natural Curiosities in London, which was this brand new exhibition hall that had started out as a Mr. William Bullock's, I mean, you know, his storage shed where <laughs> you collect a bunch of stuff and it's just like, I got to do something with all this. So he made this museum and it was full of stuffed elephants. There were ostriches. There were hundreds of glass cases full of preserved animals and plants. There were interesting rocks, artifacts from exotic civilizations brought back from intrepid explorers. This skeleton was sort of the crown jewel of the collection up there. People by the thousands came to see the thing that they called a crocodile in skeletal form because it did not yet have a name. And Mary had no idea that her skeleton was setting off both a scientific crisis and a religious crisis. Learned men in London were arguing over how to categorize the new skeleton. Fish? Lizard? Fish? Lizard? Ultimately, the curator of the British Museum named it ichthyosaur, which means... Fish lizard. (laughs) (laughs) It's neither one, so the joke's on all of them collectively. (laughs) The word dinosaur wasn't used until much, much later. So we've got our fish lizard, and it is causing consternation scientifically. As to religion, ooh, it's stirring up the waters. Big time. Because up until this point, anything that was found as these fossils, it was just assumed that it was a creature that had gone away to another area, that it was something that still existed. But now it was something no one had ever seen before. How long it had been there, they still weren't sure. Up until this point, the only history book that they had was the Bible. And the Bible, according to religious scholars, put the creation of the world only about 6,000 years before. It wasn't old enough to go back as far as these scientists were suggesting this ichthyosaurus had come from. At this point, the religious leaders are feeling threatened that everything that they had believed, everything that they had been teaching was wrong. Huge drama. 
Yeah, this relatively new science of geology had been making some disturbing revelations even before this new fossil. Mostly that the world seemed to be a lot older than we think it is. They didn't know that her ichthyosaur could have been over 250 million years old. That could not have been fathomed, and I'm glad it was not released upon their brains because they couldn't have handled it. One of their theologians had calculated it out that world was created at 8 p.m. on Saturday, the 23rd of October, 4004 B.C. How's that for specific? <laughs> and then it was created only in seven days. They were reading it as a literal seven days. There's nothing in that story that told them anything about 250 million years ago. So these layers of fossils are wrecking up theological teaching all over the place. And so there started to be a little bit of a schism where some of the scholars are thinking, well, maybe we need to start viewing things as more of an allegory. Perhaps six days was not literal, like a day might mean a long time. A layer of the earth forms in one of those days, an era, an epoch, and then the next day is the next layer. I mean, there was a real philosophical crisis. What is happening? Well, one thing that's happening is that rich, smart guys all over Britain are punching each other in the face over all of this. The thought was, maybe these animals are living somewhere in the depths of the ocean where we can't see them. Surely they're somewhere. We just have to find them. And then, of course, you get this picture of like, do I want to swim in this water? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I always think that after I see the carp under the deck at the boat, I'm like, mm. and I'm sure they're not going to hurt me. But nevertheless, do I want to <laughs> swim with four foot long fish in the water with me? I'm not sure. Well, so when mastodon bones were found, no less a personage than Thomas Jefferson told the explorers, Lewis and Clark, to be sure to look out for those mastodons that they were sure to find that were alive walking around. It's funny to us, but at the time, it's like you find bones, you think the animal's right there somewhere. Yeah. So basically, that's what's happening philosophically, is people are trying to get their heads around the fact that mm, these might be older than we think. I cannot pretend to understand why exactly, but Mary's skeleton was upsetting people. Like, okay, now we are officially out of control. But they 100% disregarded Mary's part in the troublesome skeletons having come to their attention at all. Get used to that, sister. <laughs> it's the first thing that she finds, and it's the first time it happens, and it's not going to be the last for either of those things. Well, as of now, that's just fine with Mary. She was well-fed, she was energized by what she just accomplished, and she had some new companions to hunt for fossils with. Number one, a rich, naughty, as he'd been kicked out of several schools, and scientifically inclined 16-year-old boy named Henry de la Beach. And number two was a solidly middle-class 32-year-old woman collector and enthusiast named Elizabeth Philpott. These are people with books, with educations. So while Mary's continuing with the family business of fossilizing, she's beginning to educate herself. One of the richer ladies in town actually gave her a geology book, which she promptly wore to threads. Particularly knowledgeable customers at the curio table might lend her an article to copy into the notebooks she had taken to keeping. She became a quite good artist and a good copyist. 
She also went a step further. While she's down there on the beach, she got a hold of some creatures, some live creatures, and took them home and dissected them on the kitchen table and diagrammed her findings. She wanted to learn about their anatomy, and that's the only resource she had. It's a pretty good resource. We talk about this a lot, the autodidactics, and she was definitely one of those, naturally. Well, if people were not going to give her an education, she was just going to take one. And I highly approve of that message. I love the fact that she squabbled like a sibling with a man who came down for a month every year to hunt fossils with her. A man who became the first professor of geology at Oxford. (laughs) He is an upper class man. And here is Mary, who she's got a basic wardrobe. Her hair has not been brushed. The wind, the salt spray has made it into a bird nest. She doesn't care. No. (laughs) She made her hat and stiffened it. It's like a hard hat, top hat that she always wore to keep those rocks from hitting her on the head. She was the dirt poor daughter of a cabinet maker. There's no way around the class differences. And these two would never have met normally. And they spent months learning from each other and discussing and theorizing this man's name was Buckland. That's what we're just going to call him, Mr. Buckland. And later someone said, Mary Anning's knowledge is quite surprising, but her account of her disputes with Buckland, whose anatomical science she holds in great contempt, were quite amusing. (laughs) She is arguing with a professor at Oxford. <laughs> well, of course she is. I give her father all the credit in the world for this because he taught her how to talk to people. When the wealthy were coming to buy his items, he was talking to them. She learned that from him. So as far as she's concerned, her intelligence level is on par with them. So why can't she talk this way to them? Her two best friends were not of her class. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary hunted fossils to support her family, not as a hobby, while her old friend Henry Della Beach, her rich heir fossicking companion, was able to travel the world because he didn't have any worries about money. He came from a Jamaica sugar plantation, which was built on the backs of slaves. So he was a slave owner living off the work of slaves, but he was also this really interesting, funny, gregarious guy who was friends with Mary. At- pairing of the two of them just delighted me over and over again. (laughs) He got to meet people. He got to see sites. He got to join the Geological Society of London, which didn't admit women. And ultimately, he got to present a paper about ichthyosauruses in which Mary is given no credit. I mean, so much work refers back to this paper. So, in fact, Della Beach and one of his friends with, quote, specimens from Lyme Regis are still considered the authorities on the ichthyosauruses. Mary's first skeleton was known as the type specimen, the ideal, the example, the benchmark of what they ought to look like. She found several other types of ichthyosaur skeletons, all subtly different. You know, what does this mean? Well, evidently, Henry de la Beach examined that and um, presented his findings. But Marianne can't go to the meetings. So drink up your port, gentlemen, and eat up your steak because your meal ticket is starving. Mm-hmm. Mary was having a heck of a time finding anything, and the family finances were starting to dwindle again. 
When she was about 21, unfortunately, they had to add used furniture to the list of items that they were selling one day. So a regular customer called in and was just horrified by the state they were in. He seemed to realize in a way that no one else did that Mary's role in the scientific world was valuable. When he saw that the family was trying to liquidate anything to put food on their table, he decided to step in. Birch decided to step in. He was going to sell his own collection of fossils to help raise money for the family. Now, a lot of these were things that Mary herself had found, but he was willing to part with these things that he had bought to help out these people. He just wanted to help them out. In a famous auction up at the Museum of Natural History, where the ichthyosaurus skeleton is, attended by the notables of the fossil industry, his collection was liquidated and snapped up by museums coming to blows <laughs> over the best stuff. And he gave, as far as history knows, all the money to Mary's family, almost 400 pounds. So he's just given her like a decade worth of security. Because he was trying to support the science that he felt that she had contributed so much to. Another thing that he did in all this as he gave her credit, you know, there's just these people that keep popping up and trying to put her name into the history books. You know, he's saying this is Mary Anning of Lyme Regis, who has found these wonderful items. And that alone, because of the popularity of this auction, for the type of people that bought things at it and him talking about her, suddenly she was a name. Suddenly some people in the industry were trying to seek her out. Here's a quote that kind of explains how things are starting to change for her. The name Mary Anning was starting to mean something. This persevering female has for years gone daily in search of fossil remains of importance at every tide. For many miles into the hanging cliffs at Lyme, to her exertions, we owe nearly all the fine specimens of ichthysauri of the great collections of the world. Hooray! Yes. And even when he does this really wonderful gesture, of course, there's people who are just nasty. And there was some very salacious rumors going around that the reason that he did it was that they had some type of a relationship going on. He was 52. She was 21. They were just friends and their friendship was based on their shared interest. This was the storyline in Madam Secretary, actually. Oh, it was? Yeah that uh, Bess and the president had had an affair back when they worked for the CIA. Instead of a mentor and yes. mentee situation. Yep, yep. People always have to put a little spin on that kind of thing. Now, that said, 52-year-old men married 23-year-old women all the time in the early 1800s. So it's not outer limits. <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying it's possible, but it, it didn't happen. So at 23... Mary found another large, complete animal skeleton. This one was more bizarre than the last one, like a giant turtle with a long, long neck and just a relatively tiny head. No legs, just these paddles made out of thin, fragile bones. <laughs> and so the worldwide academic expert in anatomy was immediately suspicious of her new skeleton. Like, children know not to just put that sort of thing together and try to submit it for our approval, you know? Like, fakes <laughs> abounded in the fossil business. So he's not wrong in his suspicion, but this one was just so ridiculous, he said. Mary's Intricate drawings of the creature made their way to the Geological Society and were the subject of controversy. 
they debated whether this thing was real or a fake. There are 35 vertebrae in the neck. Even a bird only goes to 25. You and I, Susan, think giraffes have long necks. They only have seven vertebrae, just like a person in their neck. Oh my gosh, I yeah. did not know that. <laughs> so yeah, you're thinking, um, there's long neck things everywhere, but not like this. Mm. And then the head was only five inches. I can understand why they're not thinking that this is real. It's too far out. Eventually, everyone was convinced that it was real, and one man presented a paper about it. The definitive plesiosaurus, gentlemen, golf clap, here, here. And never mention Mary, who had just found the first complete plesiosaur. And if you're British, it's plesiosaur, by the way. So we know there's a difference. (laughs) So these eminent British men of the Geological Society would have called it a plesiosaur. It was like she was just a delivery person to the real scientists, is what it seemed like. Some sort of trademen, you know. Mm-hmm. When the men in this society had to refer to her at all, they referred to her as, quote, the proprietor. That she was just the seller of artifacts to the real guys, them. Mm-hmm. Not good. No, not at all. Well, and that's how they looked at her, as just a servant almost. It was around this time that Mary wrote to one of her friends that, quote, the world has used me so unkindly, I fear it has made me suspicious of all mankind. Yeah, she's starting to realize how she's being treated. Well, the Duke of Buckingham himself had paid her handsomely for the plesiosaur, so maybe she'd have to be content with that. Mary just ached to be a part of everything. And we, you and I, Susan, did not actually focus on this in the Ada Loveless episode I think she had an advantage that poor Mary didn't have. Just imagine if Mary had the financial resources that Ada Lovelace had had. It's all well and good to be eccentric and love science if you're cushioned by money and leisure time. Mm -hmm. Not to diminish Ada Lovelace's accomplishments at all, but compared to Mary, she had a lot of permission to be kooky that Mary couldn't afford. She was hobbled not only by being a woman, but by being from the very lowest of social classes. No one was going to take her seriously. Yeah, she was considered a tradesperson. The differences between Ada and Mary, Ada's work was fairly cerebral. She could do it inside. Mary's outside in the elements, getting her hands all calloused and building up her muscles and jumping from rock to rock to keep herself alive. Their lifestyles were so vastly different. But yes, I completely agree. If she had had just a little more financial cushion, you know, a little class up, perhaps things would have been a lot different. Well, the eminent men of all social classes were certainly willing to travel to Lyme Regis for the express purpose of going out with Mary Anning for a bit of a fieldwork Q&A, but not willing to give her any respect or credit. Even the women of the upper classes referred to her like this, and I quote again, it is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favor. This poor ignorant girl should be so blessed. By reading an application, she has arrived to that degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors and other clever men on this subject. And they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. Do they, though? (laughs) I don't think so. Maybe in the drawing room they do, but not in public. Well, Mary and her friend Elizabeth Philpott discovered something quite interesting and bizarre. Mary found what looked to her like the ink sacs on one of her dissected animals inside of a fossil and took it back to her friend. And 
Elizabeth decided to reconstitute the ink because that was their theory that it was an ink sack from a long, long ago animal that also used that defense mechanism. And she drew prehistoric animals with it and sold the pictures, which is super meta. (laughs) Definitely. And it became like an art around the village. If Mary and Elizabeth could do it, we can do it too. So artists around the village were all starting to create these drawings. A picture drawn with ink from a fossil of a fossil. It's just circular and kind of neat. And I could see that I would buy one too. But as far as Mary's like, whatever pays the bills, just (laughs) fine, check, ink sacks, we'll collect, deliver to Elizabeth. She doesn't care. Well, at 27, here's something she did care about. Security. Mary was finally able to buy, not rent, but buy a cottage in a better part of town up higher. She and her mother and her brother would live in the back and they used the front with its bow fronted glass window as a little fossil shop, an official fossil shop. No more the table outside the door. People could come in and browse. Anning's Fossil Depot. I love that name so much. Anning's Fossil Depot. Come on down. I'm very proud of her for getting to this stage in her life. Not only was she able to save this money, she's bringing her family up out of that lower class by moving to a house that they own in a nicer part of town. So she's helping to lift her whole family up on the backs of these fossils that she's finding. And one of the neighboring businessmen came in and shook her hand and said that she was quite the welcome addition to our town. Like, where do you think she's been all this time? (laughs) Okay, well, thanks. I'll maybe brush my hair or something now that I'm fancy. Well, anyway, I want to say Mama ran the shop. She um, wore one of those mob caps. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's almost like a circle of white with ruffles around the face. Oh. Mm-hmm. And shuffled around and took the money. And I don't know how charismatic she was. I think it would have been better to have Mary there, but, you know, somebody's <laughs> got to provide the inventory. So, well, she also was uh, Molly the Hammer at some points when museums weren't paying for the items that they had promised to pay for. She would write them a letter saying, you know, I'm a poor widow. I need this money. Could you please send it now? <laughs> oh, Dunning letters. She was collections. Yes. Nice. Well, Mary's old friend and eccentric Oxford professor Buckland showed up with an exciting new area of study. These swirly gray stones seem to be turning up in the fossil layers all over the world. Bezoar stones, everyone called them. Well, because these stones bore a strong resemblance to something that goats were afflicted with. Goats keep getting these kind of tightly packed little circles of undigested material stuck in their intestines. Traditionally, a very powerful magical item. People polish them and put them into jewelry. They were thought to be an antidote to every poison in the world. <laughs> Thus, the fact that Harry Potter saved Ron Weasley. Yes, that bezoar. <laughs> I didn't know how you're going to get Harry Potter in this one. <laughs> well, that was pretty easy. But I am here to tell you, I hope Harry Potter gave Ron a goat bezoar because Buckland <laughs> showed Mary his bezoar. And she's like, it's poo, isn't it? Said Mary. Look, I I find those things in pelvises all the time. Why is it shaped like this? Said Buckland. Because when it went through, it wasn't hard, yo. (laughs) To her, it seems pretty linear. And he's all like, Eureka, we have it. 
And it is hard to think of poop being a gateway (laughs) to the romance of the past, but it's sort of like how photography humanizes history when you see an old photograph seeing what these animals ate through their poop, which they had to reconstitute and also smell delicious. It was opening up people's minds that, hey, these were not just curious things mounted in a glass box, but these had been living creatures. And Buckland and Mary spent a happy season digging through ancient poop and picking through it. And I have to say, I have done the same thing. Excuse me? If you have a science store in your town or a toy store that leans that way, you can buy in a little packet something called an owl pellet. Oh, okay. Yes. (laughs) And uh, technically not so much poop, but closer to a bezoar. Actually, in the classical sense, you can dig through this owl pellet, ideally with gloves on, don't get me wrong, with your tweezers and everything. And usually you can get a mouse skeleton out of there. It's amazing. Buckland called his new subject of study coprolites, Greek for dung stone. So now we have fish lizard, dung stone, and Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> it's all kind of Monty Python the way they keep naming things to me. We all have that one friend. She's the one that tries something new and reports back to the rest of us. Whether it's something super trendy or more of a guinea pig type situation, when you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear from someone who's been there, who's done that. Choosing the right software for your business is no different. Read thousands of real software reviews to help you choose the right software for your business on captera.com slash chicks. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. They have over 750,000 reviews of products from real software users and over 700 specific categories of software. doesn't matter what your business is. You have a bakery? You have a consulting firm? Are you a podcaster? Captera's tools help us all to find the right software for our business, big or small. Visit captera.com slash chicks for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com slash chicks. That's captera, C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash chicks. Captera, software selection simplified. But as fascinating as this was, this study of poop, the cold hard facts were that you were not going to be able to sell poop to the fancy customers down at the assembly rooms. This has been a fine vacation into my dream life of pure research, but my stomach is growling and I need to go back to the cliffs. And Luckily, a little development in fashion was helping her out quite a bit. City people all over England had suddenly become obsessed with putting stucco on their houses. It's nicer than bricks or stone. Uh, It's not true stucco. I guess it's more like plaster, but they would cover the faces of old-fashioned brick with this new stuff, and their house would look way nicer. And as a result, Mary sort of got an able assist on some of the grunt work because the quarrymen carried away the excess rock for their own purposes. So there was less of the heavy stuff for her to do. At 28, she was able to discover 
the complete skeleton of a flying lizard. And as Buckland described it, quote, a monster resembling nothing that has ever been seen or heard of upon earth, excepting the dragons of romance and of heraldry. A monster that flies, basically, although he was a little mistaken because they had found some in Germany. This is the first British, what they called a pterosaur, which means wing lizard. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there it is. But a monster that flies is pretty crazy, especially if you have an inkling in the back of your head that they still exist somewhere, which were still there. Of course, Buckland was the one who gave the talk at the Geologic Society. He did tell everyone she found it, to his credit, but he got the official recognition for it, which has to rankle. I'm not entirely sure what Buckland could have done. I mean, he could have insisted more, but he didn't. Other kinds of dinosaurs were being discovered all over the place. Natural history museums sprang up everywhere, but Mary Anning, the OG original gangster or old guard, I don't know which that stands for, had um, <laughs> never seen the inside of a museum in her life. I mean, her work sure had. Some of her larger pieces that she'd unearthed had engendered some undignified slap fighting among the major museums. She was referred to among the people in the know as the princess of paleontology. It's not money, but it is glory. Mary took up a standing invitation from one of her regular visitors and traveled to London. Her first visit ever out of the environs of Lyme Regis in her whole entire life. And she had been watching all of her friends go everywhere. You know, Henry was all over the globe and she hadn't even been out of Lyme Regis to go to London, which is in the same country, but it must have appeared to be totally foreign to her. It doesn't look anything like Lyme Regis. I am so glad that she had this time. Honestly, <laughs> she was taken on tours of the largest museums and she just filled her eyes with like an unimaginable sights to her. It was just so crowded and so loud and smokier than she had ever breathed in her whole life, but also full of energy. She described it as poverty and plenty living side by side, which of course it was and probably still is. The fancy clothing stores amused her to no end, especially the prices they could charge for things. <laughs> she was definitely more utilitarian in her clothes, but I don't think she wore her hard hat in town. I don't know that I'd put it past her, but no. I don't think she did. I don't think she did because she was staying with more moneyed friends. So I would suspect that she, you know, went and roamed the whole thing. Perhaps was guided by her friends into acceptable clothing. Yes. <laughs> On loan. <laughs> I know. Right? Here, let's come look in my closet. I think I've got something that'll fit you. Hey, here's a dropped in history. That year that she went to London, London's first official police force was established. They didn't have a police force until this point. I think that they did not experience a great degree of acceptance. I think mm -hmm. <laughs> that it was very popular among the ne'er-do-wells to see a policeman and gang up on him. So it took a little while for them to become the authorite. Right. <laughs> but think how brave you must be to be one of the first waves of policemen. Like, well, here I go. Off to get beat up in my See you later, <laughs> honey. What's for supper? <laughs> A stake on my eye. That's right. There is something curious in the London air because part of the Bobby's outfits were a reinforced tall hard hat. I just don't know. So what are the chances that we've got two groups of people with reinforced hard hats in the same place at the same time? Anyway, 
So when she was in London, she also saw the famous Elgin marbles that had been taken slash stolen out of the Parthenon and brought to London. She also heard her very first symphony. There was a lot to take in. And when she came back to Lyme Regis, I wonder if it was with joy or with sadness. She doesn't say. But soon she had something to take her mind off of it with another major discovery. This time it was a fish. It looked kind of like a shark and a ray had mated. (laughs) This new species was called Squalaraja. I have no idea what that means. Probably shark ray. (laughs) That's true. Well, one thing it did do is start to fill in the fossil record. It was a transition fossil between two known species and it intensified the battle royale between people called gradualists or maybe later they would be the evolutionists and then creationists in the scientific world were not comfortable with the way that the fossil record kept getting filled up in this way with these transitional fossils. Mary's own world, her practical world, was getting very precarious. The economy was raggedy and her financial situation was desperate. Mary was on the verge of giving up and maybe going into service because that was her option. When her childhood friend, Henry de la Beach, came to her door with a present. Do you remember him? Rich sugar baron, lover of travel, liver of the scientific life of Mary's dreams, taker of ichthyosaurus credits. Remember him, Rich Sugar Baron? (laughs) It was a painting that he had done, a watercolor. It's a painting that he called Duria Antiquar, a more ancient Dorset. And what it was, I can't even imagine how she felt when she saw what he had done. This painting, he had put every single one of her finds into the same painting. There was even coprolites being deposited out of some animals. How's that? Is that a polite way to say it? The pooping dinosaur is not off to the side. It is front and center. It is one of the two main characters. And so you're supposed to see the poop falling down, like in terror or whatnot. (laughs) But he had all of them. He had an ichthyosaurus that was biting the long neck of a plesiosaur. He had another... Plesiosaur jumping out of the water at a flying pterosaur. Look at me with all these words. It was gruesome. It was brutal. And it was awesome. It was a waterline photo. It was as if you were in the water with the animals. There was what was happening above the waterline and what was happening below the waterline. And it was a magnificent painting. It was the first example of paleo art, of taking these fossils, taking these skeletons, putting bodies on them and painting it to show people what the world looked like at that point, which was fascinating enough. But his plan, his plan was to sell prints of this and give all the money to the Annings. Again, somebody else doing something so generous for her. But why do people not just give her money? I am very puzzled. Maybe he wanted to paint this painting. No, I know. Paint the painting. But why does everybody have to have a convoluted scenario? I I appreciate him giving her the gift, number one, because it's like <laughs> so great. That's not something you do in just an afternoon. It showed that he was thinking about her and also the plan to make lithographs and sell them. Also great. I am in no way saying anything he did there is bad, but I just wonder why he didn't just reach in his sugar baron money and just hand her some money. Was it just not done with a capital N-D? I don't know. Was it offensive to be given a handout? Rather, this was something that she was selling. You know, she understands commerce. I guess it would preserve the dignity of the person you're giving to. I guess I can buy that. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Speaking of dignity, 
Henry had done another piece of art. It was a painting of the scientist as a professor wearing robes, leading a choir at the entrance of a cave, and everyone, the choir and the professor, were all pooing themselves. It was Buckland. <laughs> it was just Buckland, and Buckland loved it. He had a table made out of copper lights that were mounted under glass, and they called it the poop table. <laughs> It was just gross, man. I mean, not reconstituted poop. It was old hard rock fossil poop. Still creepy <laughs> to me. Um, well, people have their things. At 31, she made another friend, a young girl named Anna Penny, who was the daughter of yet another sugar baron, they just keep coming up, who had moved to town to try to get his son elected as a member of parliament from this area. And so... Anna had come into the shop. And do you know how you have just sometimes you just like people for no apparent reason, like your pheromones match up or something? Not like like, but you know you're going to be friends. Yes. Uh, the mom was snotty as heck and really did not want her teenage daughter around this personage. Like, <laughs> this manly, rough, peasant person. But you did not want to alienate the Annings, said her papa. They were likely to take against your brother and pass the word around. And you never knew who was going to stand in the way of my son being an MP. So enough of that. Ixnay on the snottiness. So a real relationship was allowed to develop between Anna and Mary, and it is through Anna's journals that you get a fuller picture of the real Mary. One of the pages in her diary says, Mary glories in being afraid of no one, also in saying everything she pleases. She was very good-humored with me, but gossiped and abused almost everyone in Lyme, laughing extremely at the young dandies, saying they were numbskulls, not men. <laughs> I love it. They were both, though, very devout women, despite the gossip. And they were able, while they were hunting on the cliffs, to have very deep discussions. Mary had a lot more faith than I think a lot of accounts give her credit for. It was very important to her her entire life. When she had money, she gave it to her church, and she was still worshiping at the dissenters' church of her father. However, like in a lot of churches, there was a change in personnel. One pastor, who she got along great with, who was willing to discuss things with her, like how could these creatures that lived millions of years ago fit into a biblical account of our world, changed with another pastor who didn't do that. So at this point, Mary decided that it was time for her to make a change too, and she switched to the Church of England. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal to us because, you know, people switch churches all the time. But in this situation, just like when she had bought the house, she pulled herself up out of the level of life that she lived to join the Church of England. The church had a bigger building. It was plusher. They kept adding on for the congregation that just kept growing. But one of the things that she loved the most is the community programs that the Anglican Church as a whole were starting. 17,000 schools that offered an education to less fiscally sound children were springing up all over England, supported by this church. So I think that helped her you know, make her decision that this was the right move for her. So as we're all equals on the beach, I think it was very nice for her to have someone just talk to about whatever and get a real personal friendship with. And Anna Penny was that person. For a while, she was able to discuss her frustrations 
One of which is, and this is a quote that you read a lot when it comes to Mary Anning, men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal by publishing works of which she furnished the contents while she derived none of the advantages. I mean, it was rankling her, but there's really no one to tell. Who do you snitch to? They will just nod and smile at you. It's very frustrating. What I loved about this friendship is like her other relationships with people of different classes, this was that, but the age difference, they shouldn't have been as close as they were, you know, on paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was just so much older, but it doesn't matter. I have so many friends that are not my age that I can totally understand the joy of having a relationship like that. So I'm just so happy that she had that in her life. My mother had so many friends that were much younger than she in her French horn section. Mm -hmm. It's um, amazing to see how valuable her friendship was to them. And Mm -hmm. I can only imagine it was reciprocal. So I think that's really good. I need to need to make some much younger friends (laughs) or much (laughs) older. I got 10 years on you. Oh, I do have a much older friend. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And I have a much younger one. <laughs> oh, check. We're done. Good. Excellent. Oh, that was easy. Well, also on a more personal note, she hinted strongly at an eight-year romantic frustration. Could it be that she'd been in love with Henry de la Beach all along? Unrequited, of course. She'd been linked as a 20-something to Lieutenant Birch. She had been linked to Buckland, but he was so weird. I mean, it's hard to say about that guy. She did spend an awful lot of time with him out without a chaperone. Like, nobody really believed they were going out, though. Nobody, (laughs) nobody, nobody. (laughs) Well, and Henry even had the opportunity. He had been married with a child, but his wife left him. And this is, again, another side of him. His wife left him, although she had had the affair. He took the blame for it. That's the gentlemanly thing to do. So he had an opportunity They were very close in age. They had a lot in common. They got along wonderfully. But in those letters, it doesn't say who this person was. See, this is what she wrote to Anna that make people wonder, historians wonder about Henry. Bodily anguish was small with what was suffered by a proud mind who had hoped since childhood to see herself removed from her low situation in life and suddenly saw those hopes blasted by satanic treachery. Like, what happened? I know. What satanic treachery? And how bad could the treachery be if he shows up with a painting? I don't know. I don't know what happened and we'll never know. So gossip girl out. (laughs) Speculation on this is just fruitless. But um, what I wanted to get from all of that was that she felt comfortable talking about what was in her heart with someone. And I'm glad she had someone to do that with. Well, equally questionable, though, to our speculation, there is a new movie coming out and it's going to tell you that Kate Winslet's Mary Anning was romantically involved with Sarcha Ronan's maybe Anna Penny. We don't actually know who Sarcha Ronan's cast as yet. Um, it could be this person, a friend of hers named Charlotte Murchison, who was a fossil collector and a fellow scientist um, who she stayed with in London. That's the house she stayed in, the friends, married to a famous geologist who was a man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, with what evidence is this movie connecting those two things? Zero for romantic involvement. If the movie does one thing. Here's what I hope it focuses on. Um, I hope it focuses on what you can really see was valuable in her life. The female colleagues and collaborators 
who weren't in control of their own movements a lot of times, I think, were the friendships that lasted. They were conducted by letter. I have virtual friends that I've known for over 20 years, and I find them a great comfort to me. So the men took her credit and the women supported her work. And so the jury, my jury is still out on that movie. But if we're going to be truly, truly honest with ourselves, our speculating about Henry de la Beach is just as suspect as the filmmakers speculating about Charlotte Murchison. So we are going to get off our high horse. So meanwhile, the Geological Society is wringing its hands about women even attending a series of geology lectures on their premises. I am sorry to say that our old eccentric Professor Buckland said the following. Everyone agrees that if the meeting was to be of any scientific utility, ladies ought not attend. It would turn the thing into a dilettante meeting instead of a serious philosophical meeting of working men. The man that had to run to Mary to identify poop nuggets? <laughs> like, where is the disconnect? Even the, quote, good men in this story have their blinders on. I'm not happy with them. No. No. For these men that are accepting new theories that go way beyond what they had previously believed, why can't they take this extra step that women are smart enough? Does that make any sense? Maybe they could just believe one thing at a time. Ah, oh, yes. Mary had had another constant companion for many years. It was a black and white terrier-based mutt she called Trey. Trey came with her every day. Sometimes she would leave Trey in a spot so she could go back to get help or tools or whatever. And she'd leave him there to mark her spot. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good dog. I know. He was such a good boy. One day they were out climbing along the rocks and there was an avalanche of rocks and Trey was buried. She dug and dug and dug to try to get him out. But unfortunately, by the time she reached him, he was already dead. Hopefully he died instantaneously. But her best friend, her pal, was no longer alive. And then, as if the universe had to make sure she understood her low position, she lost her life savings in what is speculated to be perhaps a bank failure. So here she is, back on the bottom. It seems crazy to me, and it has the whole time, that a person who is so absolutely crucial to the study of paleontology, its princess, in fact, evidently, was so constantly near starvation. It's just a constant struggle just to stay fed and clothed. It just kills me. Mm -hmm. So her men friends contrived somehow to get her a civil list pension. Hooray. So from the government, she received a stipend every month. And that really sustained her for the rest of her life. So good for them. Yeah. It wasn't a whole lot, but it was enough to put food on the table for both her and Molly. So another man came through in a different way, a nearly perfect stranger, although uh, he came by for a season. A Swiss theoretical paleontologist, already we're specializing, came <laughs> to visit. Um, not a field man is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Mary liked to have killed him, taking him out on expedition in his fancy clothes. Um, imagine the desk jockey, you know out in the work site, but he was very impressed. I think he was impressed that she nearly killed him by making him fall off a cliff. <laughs> and ultimately, he named two species of fish after her, Acritus aninae 
and Belenostomus NA. I don't know about the pronunciations and I can't look them up. <laughs> <laughs> so this is rare credit from a near stranger, but I'm wondering if it's because he met her at the height of her fame, such as it was, and she was a total stranger that it seemed natural for him to give her that respect, whereas everyone else had grown up with her from the poor side of town. Oh, yes. All he saw was a person that owned a shop and house in the nice area that went to the right church. You know, he got mm -hmm. a different picture of her. And I wonder if he treated her better because of it. Yeah. He looked at her kind of like a colleague in that, mm -hmm. I mean, she is an expert in this field and people were flocking around like him to learn from her. Yeah. I hope so, because that would mean that she succeeded in pulling herself up. Right. In I don't want to say rebranding, but just improving her life. When Mary was 42, the famous term dinosaur, actually it's dinosauria, yeah. was popularized by a man named Richard Owen, Dinosauros, which means terrible lizard. People maybe were starting to come a little bit more to terms with these discoveries. They were common enough and frequent enough at this point that they're going to have to start modifying their thinking. So now the prevailing wisdom of the majority was, so God made the laws by which creatures can modify themselves. Oh, boys and girls. We are about 17 years away from Darwin's origin of species. We are so close. <laughs> We're inching that way. During Mary's lifetime, there had been a major shift in thought just in her brief lifetime. And I think that needed to happen before Darwin did. Because if he had just laid that all out on them... Mm -hmm. I, it wouldn't have gone anywhere, but they were already doing the mental gymnastics, you know, trying to put their faith and science together. Yeah. There's a lot of things they still had to come to terms with. The very concept of extinction was blowing people's minds, that there could have been creatures that existed that no longer existed, that there could have been an era of millions and millions of years where there was no, what did they call it, sentient being to understand God's will. Yeah, it really blew their minds. The fact that the first human and the last dinosaur are 59 million years apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just like, uh... And, you know, it's not, you know, not until the 1920s that that was even understood. And it's not until the 1990s when they saw them all together again in Jurassic Park. <laughs> I have just read a thing about that movie, by the way. Somebody was saying, oh, my gosh, the CGI really holds up. It's amazing. The T-Rex is undescribably great. Why don't they have CGI like that anymore? It's because it was an animatronic dinosaur that they spent most of their money on. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And the raptors were like dudes in suits. That's why the CGI looks so good. <laughs> anyway, there it is. Hate to bring it back down, but that same year when Mary was 42, Molly passed away. She was 78. And suddenly this death and this absence of her mother, who had been her constant roommate for Mary's 42 years, was suddenly gone. That's a really hard thing for someone to deal with. It did inspire her, though, to start what is called a common book. It's kind of like a contemporary autograph book or maybe a scrapbook that you have all your friends put things in. They'll write things about you. Maybe you'll write poetry or copy poetry, as Mary did in there. Just things that you wanted to remember that made you happy. So there's this common book that Mary had started about this time, and it still exists. You can see it. I will link you up. I don't know why we don't do this. 
That's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. I think people are making these bullet journals, and that's what that reminds me of. It's like some pages are drawings, some pages are clippings, some pages are thoughts and memories, some are just pressed flowers or whatever. And I I always want to start a bullet journal. Like I'll go buy a notebook. (laughs) And that's as far as I ever get. Um, I wish I had the one more push to like get it going. Yeah. I think I would need a time, like drop off lane time or something that forced me to just sit there and not be doing anything. My body's saying, no, go to Pinterest. (laughs) So she was working on getting her mojo back and it is tough. It is tough when your mother dies and I am with you, girl. It took a couple years and then Sasma Fras came back when, take a breath, King Frederick Augustus of Saxony himself came personally to the store to buy a six-foot ichthyosaurus. And his equerry wanted to get her name for future correspondence. And she wrote in there, Mary Anning, and then right under there, I am well known throughout Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. King, sir. Ask anybody. (laughs) I love it. Well, not too much after her epic king meeting, she became mysteriously ill. And ultimately, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And in this time and place, a diagnosis of breast cancer was a death sentence. There's nothing they could do but issue you increasing amounts of laudanum. And I'm sorry to say that after all this time of being a respectable, hardworking citizen, her slurred speech and her staggering led many to suspect that she had taken to the drink in sadness after her mother's death, rather than the fact that she was staving off enormous amounts of pain. Mm. Our friend Henry de la Beach got together with other members of the Geological Society and they established a fund for her medical care. So that was nice. So she didn't really have to think too much about, you know, how she was going to pay for her laudanum, basically. She lived with breast cancer for two very painful years until on March 9th, 1847, 47-year-old Mary Anning passed away. She was buried in the Anglican Church Cemetery. Her collection of fossils was sold off. Uh, One chunk went to one person, but within a few years, he sold that as well. So all of her collection that she had was dispersed all over the place. It's not anywhere together, which is sad. Although I will tell you that the very, very first ichthyosaur... Um, but only the skull. So I guess it's the skull that Joseph found Mm -hmm. nothing to do with Mary. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Actually is at the London Natural History Museum. If it makes you feel any better, her plesiosaurus mounted on the wall there by the main restaurant. Although you're going to want to call it as you're in England, a plesiosaurus. Oh, yes. Speaking of Joseph, he only died two years after her and they are buried together. They have a shared headstone, which is really nice. And people go there. They don't put just flowers there. They also put seashells and fossils and things that Mary would have appreciated. You know what that reminds me of is in Paris, in Père Lachaise, how people put potatoes on the grave of Mr. Parmentier. People, they make an X on Marie Laveau's tomb. Susan B. Anthony, every time we have an election, people go and put their I voted stickers all over her headstone. So if you know of more stuff like that, we would like to make a list because it's very intriguing. It is. Only a year after her death, Henry de la Beach was knighted and also became president of the Geological Society. 
Two years after that, the Geological Society paid for a stained glass window in Mary's church, and it was dedicated in her name. In 1901, women were allowed to simply attend a Geological Society meeting. This was a big deal. They could sit there. They had to be quiet, but they could go. 1904, the first woman presented her paper to the Geological Society, although she was still not a member. Although it was voted on several times over the years, it never passed until 1919, when women were finally admitted as fellows to the Geological Society. Mary wasn't even close to getting in. Henry de la Beach actually gave a speech to the Geological Society. Typically, there's a part where it's like our dearly departed brethren, you know, and he gives a little word about each one of them. And I'm going to compress what he said about her, but he says, I cannot close this notice of our losses by death without advertising that of one who, though not placed among the easier classes of society, but one who had to earn her daily bread by her labor, contributed by her talents and her untiring researches in no small degree to our knowledge of the great Enalosaurians and other forms of organic life. There are those among us in this room who know well how to appreciate the skill she employed. See, I think that was... Very nice and very late. And I wish you'd said it while she was still alive. And now it's time for media. There really aren't a whole lot of biographies about her. The two that I used, one is The Fossil Hunter by Shelley Emling. I thought that this one filled in a lot of blanks, which I don't know if I like that or not. It reads like a novel. All the facts are there, but she fills in like motivation and possible thoughts. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little too heavily, but again, all the facts were there. It was an easy read. I would suggest you read it. Yeah, you get to a point where it's like, she might have thought that it's blah, 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 blah. And you're like, might she have? Mm. And your second one? My second one is uh, Jurassic Mary, Mary Anning and the Primeval Monsters by Patricia Pierce. A little shorter, a little drier, but not as much flowery language. Again, didn't take too long to get through it and hit all the points. And as to a children's book, I like one called Stone Girl, Bone Girl, The Story of Mary Anning of Lyme Regis by Lawrence Anholt, illustrated by Sheila Moxley. It's very cute. It's very colorful. <laughs> it has several dinosaurs on the front that have nothing to do with her. <laughs> <laughs> But that's okay. Uh, it has a stegosaurus. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But there you go. It's a pretty cute book nonetheless. There is a novel, not a biography, but um, a very entertaining novel called Curiosity by an author named Monica Culling, K-U-L-L-I-N-G. It's kind of just a recreation of her childhood. And there's another one called Remarkable Creatures by Tracy Chevalier. And I didn't get to read it because I was too far down on the wait list. <laughs> But my librarian, Kathleen, gives it a thumbs up. She said it was uh, very good. And so I think that librarian recommendations are just as good as Barnes & Noble employee recommendations. So there you go. Kathleen <laughs> says read it. I think they're better. I, than... did, I Honestly, in my notes, I said maybe better. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. What other links do I have? I have a link to the Jurassic Coast Trust. The whole area around Lyme Regis up and down that is heavily full of fossils is now operated under government auspices and is a protected area. So you can go there. You can actually, um, I do believe, go fossil hunting in a controlled way. 
with a hard hat on. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you can. You know, looking, I was looking at all the pictures of this area, trying to get a feel for it. And I just thought it was so lovely. I kind of want to go there now. I have a friend who lives in uh, Northern Ireland. And I was like, does it really only get to 67? Seems a little chilly for summer. And Sarah says that it's warm in the summer. I think I'd like to go. While you are visiting Lyme Regis, maybe on your way over to Ireland, you could go by Loch Ness and see what people are saying is a plesiosaur. (laughs) (laughs) So the Loch Ness monster, if you can imagine it, uh, Nessie is possibly, question mark, a plesiosaur. Well, I will link everybody up to some touristy spots because it just looked, it looked like a beach place and then European and, you know, small villagey. I just thought it was very charming looking. And while her fossil shop is gone, there are other fossil shops. Believe you me. (laughs) So the museum is still there on the site of her childhood home. Then they also have a website. We'll link you up to that, too. There's a lot of information, a a lot of photos, and you can see one of those common books of hers on there as well. Oh, I stumbled across this one. It's called Mary Anning's Revenge. It's a website. It's just a blog. It's kind of like history, earth, sciences, chicks. There's two women, a paleontologist, sounds like a joke, a paleontologist and an anthropologist walk into a bar. Uh, but it's got a lot of information and it's written kind of like in the same style that we write. Although I don't think that it's for the younger set. I personally giggled quite a bit when they were talking about the male vervect monkey, which has blue testicles. And they had several photos that I found very giggle worthy. (laughs) So it was a fun little website. I liked it. There you go. And then if you would like to learn how modern day people extract fossils, I will send you a link to that. It is far different than simply pulling it out of the ground (laughs) and getting some guy shaped like a triangle to carry it up the hill. I assure you, it is much different than that. Also, I was of two minds whether I should share this or not. There Just as an example of the way that credit was completely missing from Mary, a modern paper about some ichthyosaurs that mentions the men but never mentions Mary. And this is a modern paper that references their paper. So she's being like just erased two times. So I may or may not share that because... I don't know if it's really up to me to police modern science, but I thought that was very devastating. So anyway, if I don't share it, it exists. Also, on a lighter note, how about some coprolite jewelry? This is actually (laughs) coprolite jewelry from Utah and not from England. Um, Different sorts of dinosaurs. But if you would like to wear some polished poop, you can. And it's actually very pretty. It doesn't look sketchy or weird at all. No, no. (laughs) It really genuinely doesn't. Uh, When you are out and about on the interwebs, you will often see that Mary Anning was the inspiration for She Sells Seashells, written in 1908. However, it doesn't appear that that's the case. Some wonderfully nerdy folklorists looked into it, and I will link you up to the whole article. It's fascinating. It's glorious. But it talks about how Mary Anning was probably not the inspiration. It was a phrase that was used in elocution manuals long before 1908. It appears in uh, some magazines, some other folklore previous to even 1855. I was shocked because everywhere I was reading... Seashell, she, I can't even say it now. She sells seashells by the seashore is Mary Anning. 
It's not. According to this article from the United States Library of Congress blog called Folk Life Today. Well, nevertheless, that will be our end song, just so you I know. Because <laughs> it was so delightful because I found a recording of it. I guess take that with a big grain of sea salt, as it were. Oh! And since I know I am not going to get clearances to be able to play this song at the end... I would like to refer to the They Might Be Giants song, I Am a Paleontologist. It is a standard of my son's childhood, and I think you guys would all really like it. Also, you get to say the word Archaeopteryx. Yes. And that will bring us to the end of the life and our coverage of paleontologist Mary Anning to give her her full credit. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something today, tell a friend about your favorite episode of The History Chicks or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Come see us in Nashville at PodX, a brand new podcast convention that brings podcast creators and listeners together for one amazing weekend. We're doing a live show on May 31st. Go to PodX.com to get your tickets and you can use code CHICKS for $10 off your pass. The end song today is She Sells She... Sh- <laughs> Okay, see, I told you I couldn't say it. The end song today is She Sells Seashells by Billy Murray, which was recorded in 1909. The manager says I must get a good song about which the public will talk. I've commissioned some authors to write me a song, a very fine chorus they've sent me along. She sells on the seashore the shells she sells are seashells i'm sure for if she sells seashells on the seashore then i'm sure she sells seashore shells the seashell she sells are a terrible sell and the song is a sell also The authors both say it will go very big, but I fear I am all that will go. I've suffered from lockjaw and sickjaw as well in trying this chorus to sing. It's making me list, but I say to myself, the song's sure to go with a swing. I'm dreaming of seashells when I am in bed. I only wish she would sell matches instead. She sells seashells on the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. For if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. And the closest I can get is Varka Yashvarka Prosopo, which means boat, son of boat face. (laughs) Are you going to say that and record it, please? (laughs) I'm recording now. Oh. (laughs) Do you want me to add that into the section? Yes.